primary care knowledge boost, staff wellbeing, a new quaff indicator. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we are tackling the subject of well-being and how it has become a new quaff indicator. Um, we talk to a couple of different people today, actually. Um, so we have um, Dr. Joanna Bircher back on the podcast. Um, many of you will hopefully have um, heard her speak before, um, but she is here um, as a GP partner, but also with her GP Excellence hat on. Um, we have Dominic Anderson, who is working as a program manager for the Health and Wellbeing Program within Greater Manchester. And um, then we have Lorna Laughlin, who um, used to be a practice manager um, up until last year, but is now working um, with GPX and in this arena as well. Yeah, it was brilliant to talk to them about this uh, new quaff indicator. So I think this episode will be of interest to a lot of practice managers and GP partners who are taking on this mantle. So we go through um, what the un- indicators are and why they've done it in this way um so I I was fairly challenging but it's really interesting actually so Dominic's been doing staff well-being interviews as well so we go through that as a resource as well as other potential ways of gathering data about staff well-being Uh, we go through compassionate leadership and what to do with the results from these from your data your staff surveys um some really good pointers for where to seek help and to get loads of different resources to try and improve things uh yeah we find it um quite an interesting um episode in the end and we hope that um all of you listeners out there uh, get as many uh, tips and advice as we did Hello, I'm Lorna Laughlin. My background is strongly rooted in general practice management. Um, Up until last year, I was a practice manager, but now I use my experience to support general practices across England. And one of my roles is working with the GP Excellence team, which is part of the Greater Manchester Primary Care Provider Board. Hello, I'm Joanna Butcher. I'm delighted to be back on this podcast. Lisa and Sarah have let me talk to them before. Um, I'm a GP in Greater Manchester over in Tameside. And I'm also the clinical director of the GP Excellence Programme and we're to support and improve general practice across GM. Hi, I'm Dominic Anderson. Thanks for inviting me to talk to you today. I'm the programme manager for the Health and Wellbeing Programme, uh, supporting the primary care workforce in Greater Manchester, working for the uh, primary care health, uh, sorry, primary care provider board. So we're all well placed to talk um, today about staff wellbeing. So to kind of set the scene at the beginning, why is staff wellbeing so important to talk about and why are we here today um, to speak about it? So the primary care um, health and wellbeing programme has been operational for about 18 months now in Greater Manchester. It really was set up in recognition of the stress that the primary care workforce was under during the pandemic and linking people into the resources and support of which there is a lot uh, that will uh, help the primary care workforce manage their own well-being and support one another. Yeah, I think just to add to that, I think we, for ages, we recognise that kind of high quality care is one that's safe and effective, equitable, delivered in a timely manner, efficient. Uh, but I think really you can't deliver any of that if you don't have a happy, healthy team working with you and for you. So, you know, we happy staff, happy patients generally. And so I think it's becoming increasingly emphasised that that's a really big deal. We should focus on it. And that's why Dominic was brought into his post to support that. Yeah, brilliant. Definitely extremely worthwhile. Um, But thinking about how this has been received so far in terms of 
why we're here today and how this has come into quaff. It, it seems a sort of quite a difficult way to uh, try and help well-being by putting it as a quaff indicator. Um, can you set the scene for us? Why has it become part of quaff, and is it a good thing? <laughs> So the Department of Health and Social Care published a document in May last year which recognises the extreme pressures and low staff morale in general practice and it stated that the health and well-being of our team should be recognised as a key priority. Published around the same time was the Fuller Stock Tape which again highlighted the high pressure due to increasing workloads, increasing demands from patients, all of which have a significant impact on the well-being of GPs and staff in general practice. So one of the responses to these documents was to add a section on well-being in this year's quaff. Now, I agree, it raised eyebrows and it has caused some contention around how we can address such a meaningful issue through what may be seen as a tick box exercise. But actually, if you take the cynicism away from it, it's a way to introduce a really important issue using a very familiar and well-known framework through quaff. And if this is a way we can look at reducing the burnout in our GPs and practice staff and look at ways to improve their overall resilience and well-being, then we should be open to it. So whilst Quaff still focuses predominantly on good patient care, it's nice to see some acknowledgement that those caring for patients need to be looked after as well. Yeah, I think um, Toast speaking honestly is that, that a lot of practices already focus a lot on their staff and team well-being and those that understand organisational development and the importance of it and kind of get it already. But we do need to bear in mind that there are some organisations that struggle to do something if it's not contractual. So although it seems like a very odd tool to use something contractual to get people to <laughs> focus on how their staff are feeling, and um, for some people it's a it's a kind of a lever that helps to drive that. Um, but yeah, I think Lorna's quite right. It does sometimes seem a bit ridiculous, but I guess NHSC are trying to use whatever tools are available for them to get people to focus on it. And looking at it through a health and wellbeing lens, it's is a driver to get people to focus on workforce well-being, which everybody recognises is a priority. But sometimes it's difficult to put the time into that priority. And it's a way of um, providing a lever to get people to focus on it. And from the Health and Wellbeing Programme in Greater Manchester, it's about trying to make it as easy as and as painless as possible to meet people's priorities around supporting the workforce. So thinking about some of my stressed GP colleagues, I'm in the currently fortunate position of being a salaried GP, um, but definitely some of my friends who are partners have found this a little bit stressful. Um, is it just an excuse to shift the responsibility of poor outcomes and a chronically underinvested service onto the poor people who are trying to provide that care? I don't think so, and I, and I hope not. Um, you know, staff well-being may be new to quaff, but it, it isn't a new concept. And it's something that practice managers and partners have always been aware of and have seen as their responsibility. So, you know, I see this more as a direct acknowledgement from NHS England that working in general practice is challenging, that it can be tough a lot of the time for everyone. Mm -hmm. And it's more important than ever to be aware of how your staff feel and for us to look for ways to support our teams and improve well-being where we can. Yeah, I completely get the purpose of your question though, Sarah. If we're in a very under-resourced service where people are demoralised through not being able to deliver the care they want to because they don't have the resources and you often feel like the thing that would help your well-being most would be extra resources to help you out so you weren't so overworked. And I, I absolutely get that. And we are really hoping that 
that we can use this as a bit of a lever to think about the small things that you can do. You know, bearing in mind there's only so much things, you know, we hope that our political bodies will influence the the wider debate around resourcing primary care adequately, but um, let's look to see what we can do. And even the language around well-being is contentious. Um, so, you know, it's, it's quite difficult to talk about sometimes, but actually start those conversations around well-being and recognise that you don't have to take the whole elephant on, but you can do, uh, there are there are little things that you can do that will uh, make a difference to people, to yourself, is the purpose of what we're trying to do here. And I, I don't think as well we should lose sight of the fact that it isn't an us and them. It's not, you know, the partners and the managers having to fix everything for the practice staff. You know, we are part of those teams. You know, this is about how we can feel supported as well and what we can do to improve things for everyone. So, you know, as Dominic said, it doesn't have to be big things. You know, there's lots of little things you can do that actually will have a big impact on us in general practice and, and all our teams as well. So it's coming from a very good place. Yeah, exactly. It may seem bad at the outset but when you get into it you've made it sound a lot better than it did seem before um it, it might be worth contextualizing for people actually um who maybe don't fully know and um, particularly maybe some of the trainings and things what exactly a quaff indicator is um and what this new quaff indicator is that's come in okay so for anyone who isn't familiar with quaff first of all it's the quality and outcomes framework it is a framework that's been in place in general practice since 2004, but regularly changes and focuses on what the priorities are um, around the health population at the time. This year, well-being comes into that. It's the first time I'm a, I can recall anything around staff well-being being included in QAF. Usually, it's very patient-focused. So there are um, two indicators this year, which are worth a total of 37 points. The first indicator is QI013, and that one's worth 27 points. And it states the contractor can demonstrate continuous quality improvement activity focused upon workforce and well-being as specified in the current QAF guidance. You then have to read the guidance to get the actual detail. There are four aspects it expects you to focus on. Improving well-being, resilience and risk of burnout for the GP workforce is the first. Supporting the onboarding of new staff is the second. Third one is supporting the training and development of the whole team in general practice. And the last one is establishing peer support networks. You then have to read the guidance to see exactly what they want you to do for all four of those aspects. Um, but it's pretty straightforward guidance. You, you know, you can interpret it quite easily. The guidance then also details how we can demonstrate continuous quality improvement. And it takes us through five steps, which include gathering information through an evaluation exercise, creating and implementing an improvement plan and completing a monitoring template. So that's the first indicator that shifts you 27 points. Then there's a second indicator, which is QI014, uh, which is worth an additional 10 points, uh, which states the contractor has participated in network activity to regularly share and discuss learning from quality improvement activity focused on workforce and wellbeing as specified in the current QAF guidance. This would entail attending two primary care network meetings at the start and towards the end of QI activity, and if a practice is not within a PCN, the expectation is two meetings would be held locally with other practices. So that's how it's written in the indicator. Um, but really, these additional 10 points are to encourage practices to share the wider learning with the PCN and to look at ways these initiatives can be supported at a network level. Um, there's also an expectation that the practices' individual improvement plans uh, will be validated by their network peers. I mean, as we know, we've talked QI before, haven't we, at least, and Sarah, lots of times. And the, the principles are no different from every other um, element of QI. So rather than the quaff indicators where you're expected to achieve a certain number of 
what percentage of patients with hypertension controlled or HbA1cs, it, the QI indicators have always been a bit different. They've always been this, find out what you need to improve. That's the data gathering part. It's like all QI, do your diagnostics first, work out what problem it is you want to fix. And once you've done your diagnostics, then on the basis of that, set yourself some aims, find something that then you might measure to see whether you've improved it and, and then kind of report back and share. So the sharing part is the two PCN two PCN or lo- local meetings that you go to to share what you're doing. So it's the same principles, it's the same kind of QI process, but with the sharing. So it's not, um, it, and practice managers have been doing this for other aspects of um, of Quaff for the last, I think, three or four years since QI first came into Quaff. So it's just adding a new element to it. And actually, is there funding attached um, to this Quaff indicator? There is. I'm hesitant in answering that question because it's not new funding. It's obviously recycled funding from some Quaff points that we no longer need to achieve. <laughs> so some of the elements were taken out of Quaff and, and put back in. So there are the QI projects that people may have been done on the in previous years so for example the um, dependency forming drugs and um, one from last year and the access qi from last year they're not in this year's quaff so these this quaff is in is a replacement to one of those so it's um, yeah there's funding attached but i struggle to get too excited about the financial incentive gotcha that's fine thank you um and because it's not as kind of a, a hard objective that people are trying to meet, like the hypertensions or the HbA1cs, it feels a little bit kind of like a big area to tackle in a way, even if you are doing the stuff normally in day-to-day practice. Um, so do you have any advice about how to start for people to look into this area? How do you know how staff are feeling? How do you show evidence of all of the different bits that you need to? Well, that's the process that we're supporting through the Health and Wellbeing Programme in Greater Manchester. There's always been a a lack of data around the primary care workforce and the key starting point for COAF, and this applies to the CQC quality statement as well, is actually starting to gather that baseline data. So we've put together a staff wellbeing survey, uh, which has gone out in a couple of localities in Greater Manchester, where we're starting to gather that baseline data. And from that point, we have uh, a way of analysing and collating what the key priorities are and that we can discuss at a practice level, a PCN level and also a locality level so that we have some kind of information to work from. And recognising this is the starting point of this whole process, um, once we've got the data then we can look at quality improvement plans and those peer review meetings and everything else that comes afterwards and start to build on what the priorities are that we can take action on that will help to improve workforce well-being. And I think one of the challenges is there is a lot of support out there and it's quite difficult sometimes to navigate that support. So going back to what we said earlier about making the, the small changes is the starting point. And those small changes are based on the data that we're getting back from the wellbeing surveys that are out at the moment. It's good that we're kind of collating it all. So that initial starting with the wellbeing, the staff wellbeing survey, um, can you think of any potential harms that might be caused by doing something like that survey? The survey that, that we are recommending for use 
is very broad and it relates back to the NHS health and wellbeing framework. So it, it does include areas like discrimination, bullying and harassment. So it, it does involve quite challenging areas potentially, um, depending on what data comes back. But that information can then be used to inform what actions are taken as a result of it. So even where the, the data comes back and is challenging to the system, and, and this is all anonymous data as well, so we're not relating it back to individuals or even to practices necessarily, but we are able to use that with all the support that is out there to address the challenges that the system can acknowledge and, and, and do something about. Um, I suppose when we start to do things like this, there's always the possibility that, you know, you feel like you've opened a can of worms. So whilst there's, a, there's many options about how you can address well-being in your practice, there's no magic wand. And a lot of the pressures that we talked about earlier that are impacting on our staff well-being are not just going to go away. So we, we need to look at ways that we can improve the working environment, create more resilience in our team so that they are in a better position to deal with the pressures so initially raising the issues and having staff focus on them could make them feel worse or maybe even helpless. And that in turn will have an impact on the managers or partners who are trying to help them. And, you know, they are already under considerable pressure themselves. But I think if we do this properly and we focus on finding things that will make a real impact, you know, we, they don't have to be big things, but the things that we can do, focus on what impact they will have on the teams. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely wins in doing that. And we need to accept that just measuring, you know, in itself won't improve anything, but it will help us to understand where we can have an impact and where we can make positive changes for our staff. Yes, I, I liken it a little bit to the GPs who are listening will understand this and maybe some other of the health professionals who do the similar thing with multi-source feedback. So you're not really supposed to embark on a multi-source feedback until you've allocated uh, someone who you know can hold your hand through it when you get the um, get it back. Because what we, our human brain seems to do ridiculously and annoyingly is only focus on the one or the few negative comments and never, and completely ignore everything that seems to be good when we're thinking about feedback about ourselves. And there is a danger here that our practice managers and GP partners, when they receive the um, wellbeing survey results for their staff, even though they probably knew in their heart of hearts that there were things that were meaning that staff weren't happy at work or were struggling to see that in writing can have a really big psychological impact and, and I would encourage any practice manager GP partnership that wanted to embark on the well-being survey to have that awareness first so to get some support and to talk to Dominic about it before they go ahead with it um, and so that they've got some way of having a proper debrief and they don't feel that it's catastrophic and that they can look at the things where they can make an impact I think it's a really important question about the potential harms of of particularly a data gathering exercise like this yeah that's that's a, such a hugely important point um Dominic explain to me a little bit about the um survey so um is it something you've made or that Greater Manchester have made and that they can pass on or it sounds like it's not something that the practice itself sends out and then gets the data back, sort of fulfilling stage one of the data gathering exercise of the QOF. Well, it's really flexible and um, we're talking to uh, different localities on how they want to use it. So the wellbeing survey itself 
is based on the NHS staff survey, uh, but also links into the domains and the elements of the NHS health and wellbeing framework so that we can relate it back to existing data that's gathered nationally, as well as recommendations for support that can follow up depending on what data comes back. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm collating data in some localities and reporting that back for example, to practice manager forums or however the locality wants it to be reported back so that we can build a plan based on that. Um, but it also is something that can be used as a recommendation for a practice to use and send out on their own, on their own behalf to get that workforce information for their own workforce. So it's a really flexible approach, but it is in terms of its foundation based in the frameworks that exist that mean we can develop action plans based on the results. I'm with you. Yeah. So it can be used as both. So you're using it yourselves as as a tool and then practices themselves can use it as well. And practices can get support from you, um, Dominic, if they want to use it. Is that their main route? Yeah. So I'm basically there as a support mechanism um, to be responsive to how um, practices or localities want to use it and to help people to navigate the spectrum of support that's available as a result. We work really closely with the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub, which provides ongoing psychological support to individuals and teams. So it's important that there's a link there between gathering the data and offering support, whether it's to navigate the services that exist or to access psychological support as a result. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so are there any other ways that you could capture data around this topic? Yeah, I was thinking about um, practices where they're struggling with staff retention. We know that's a problem um, and we don't always know why. If team members are leaving, um, your most useful thing might be to do exit interviews and to gather your data that way. You may find that no matter how anonymized your staff wellbeing survey is, you may not get quite such honest replies as you do from someone who's already got another job and is moving on and those who are moving on without another job you'll probably get quite um, brutal feedback I would have thought but um, if you really are kind of interested that could be your data gathering you know piece you doesn't have to be a staff well-being survey to gather information it could be something that we would call an exit interview for people going it it is one of the ways that you'll get the most honesty from your team and if you use it and you can, you can learn from it. I mean, you would hope that when somebody leaves and you, you get their exit interview, that nothing in there is a shock, but sometimes it may be. So understanding why somebody's left and potentially understanding what could have made them stay, if you'd have dealt with that differently, you know, is something that you can learn from in the future. So definitely a, a good way to address that, you know, from a retention strategy point of view as well not just well-being. Um, so thinking about what we can do about the results, as you alluded to, and particularly if they are quite poor, can, can we ask the NHS for more GPs and more admin time and <laughs> build that into our contracts? <laughs> I think it's a really good question, Sarah. I know you're asking it cheekily, but um, I think it's important because actually if your outcome of your survey is that your staff, um, you have a lovely working environment, your staff are generally very happy at work and the only issue that's impacting them is high workload, uh, then it may be that some um, a kind of an assessment of how they're optimising the use of the budget in terms of 
who the right people are, have they got the right people in the right roles, could be a really important discussion. They may be possibly using more of their resources to, you know, to pay for um, clinical staff when actually they're under-resourced in terms of the admin staff. Or So it might open up a conversation about workload. It might also open up a conversation about what do we need to stop doing because we cannot currently afford to do it. So many practices offer things which are out, out with the contract because by the very nature of general practice, we are generally kind of kind and amenable and pretty patient-centered. And we often do things for which we are not paid to do. Um, and some practices need to have a kind of a really hard think about what um, what can we stop doing so that we can release resource to do the stuff that is contractual and um, so that our staff aren't overworked doing the things that we're not funded to do. So I think it is an important question. If workload is genuinely too high, have a think about whether it is still um, the right thing to be offering some of the services. You might be offering some enhanced services that are actually loss leaders and so therefore pulling resource away from doing core contracts. So actually, yes, yeah, some of those things might might come up. But, um, but generally, most of the things that will come out will not be related. I don't know, Dominic probably has got more experience this than me, but things related to kind of organisational culture, um, busy, 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 nobody having time to stop and stare. And it may not be that they are that busy, it's just they've not developed habits in, in the things that we know make people feel better at work. Um, and I also, I think we're really keen on wanting to talk about leadership style. Obviously, I'm very interested in this area. We've talked leadership stuff before, but that um, the way leaders are can make a big difference to their team, even very busy teams in terms of what we would kind of term compassionate leadership or leading with kindness, which um, is a, a relatively new concept over the last decade or so in the leadership circles. Um, and, and I think it's one of the things that will make probably the biggest difference to, to staff well-being. Sorry, second biggest after time and resources, I think. But yeah, certainly a big difference. Um, and anyone, Lorna or Dominic, any other thoughts about what to do with, with per results on the survey? Anywhere else to direct people or um, anywhere else for people to go if they want to figure out what to do next? Well, one of the things that, that we talk about a lot is around leading with kindness and compassion. And uh, a, a lot of feedback that, that comes to me through the Health and Wellbeing Programme is around the lack of time. And we're at the moment just trying to adjust the way that we talk about wellbeing um, uh, around how do people manage their energy rather than manage their time. And, and that could include physically, um, what, what are people doing to look after their own wellbeing and actually the top of the list is self-compassion before you show compassion to other people. What are you doing to support your own well-being? Um, but also the intellectual energy, the emotional energy and actually the spiritual energy. Where, where are people investing in supporting their own well-being in those areas uh, and looking after themselves? Because you can't pour from an empty cup and people need to look after yourself first. And that sometimes is a difficult message because uh, people feel guilty. People don't necessarily prioritise their own well-being. Um, but that, that is one of the key messages through the Health and Wellbeing Programme. What are you doing to look after yourself? Because you're spending all your time looking after other people, whether it's patients or colleagues or whoever it might be at home. 
you need to look after your own well-being and try and get people to start that conversation around well-being is the fundamental point of getting people to to start to think about that and even take away one thing that you can do today that will actually improve your own well-being. And I think just expanding a little bit on the leading with kindness with a bit of an example. So I think for the kind of GP partners or managers who are listening, you might be in a position where you spot that a member of your team, your admin team, has say not not completed a task, how they would how they were expected to do that thing or they didn't follow a protocol in that situation or or something um, went amiss and there are different ways of approaching that and as a leader often we approach it in the holding that person to account kind of way so go and uh, you know point it out to them and and tell them about how it should be done in future and that can have quite a big impact on the member of the team what you uncover actually if you approach it in a different way is often there's a lot more to the story than than it first looked as the person looking at it and if you approach the person with genuine curiosity um, and you on the assumption that everybody is doing their best at that moment and there was something preventing their best at that moment quite living up to what your expectations were and you understand more about what that thing was then actually you'll get a more kind of a system-wide approach to why to why that thing happened so that it's less likely to happen. Or you actually get a deeper understanding of it and it just doesn't bother you anymore because you recognise that, okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, and actually not only does that help the team member to feel they've probably been heard um, and understood, and it may be that they've just forgotten that thing. Well, in which case can you develop systems to make it easier to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing? Because human beings will always fail. We always do. So, you know, finding a system which makes that easier is a kind approach. Um, or, or it could be that actually those circumstances meant that veering away from that protocol was the right thing. So they feel listened to. And actually, as a leader, it improves your own well-being because you've not had to be cross with anybody. And we all know the psychological impact and um, of actually being, well, no, any parents listening will definitely know this. The psychological impact on the parent of having been cross is actually not great either. Uh, and seeking to be curious and to understand what occurred and then understand it actually makes you feel pretty good about yourself. So not only will you end up with a better system, you'll have a team member who's less demoralized and you'll feel better yourself. So compassionate leadership and leading with kindness has an impact on everybody and, um, and it's free. So it doesn't take any more time or resource than it would be approaching in the in the other way. Um, but it does require a bit of practice because it's often not a habit we've built up. Um, we've, we're far more embedded in that I'm leading, so I'm holding people to account kind of approach. It doesn't mean that people aren't accountable, but you seek to be curious and find out what occurred first. Uh, and yeah, that kind of thing makes a really big difference. Similarly, people... Um, I'm thinking about and say people might have a conflict about things like their contract or their salary or whatever Um, and sometimes we feel a bit frightened by that and we think we need to get a HR company in it sounds like it might go legal or and we actually feel a bit as as employers as managers or as GP partners we can get a little bit nervous and it stops us from doing the kind thing so you might end up sending out formal letters to people quoting their contract and all sorts of things Um, And that might be correct, 
but it may actually not be kind um, and actually might make you feel more anxious having done that as the leader than it would be if you just sat down and had a conversation about it and to be curious about where that their concern might be coming from. So all sorts of things I think might, I'd like to encourage people to think about when they're running practices. Thank you. That was um, a well-placed uh, example, actually. The next question was to ask a little bit more about compassionate leadership and um, a bit of an introduction to the concept, but I think you've done that quite nicely with setting that out in terms of an example. Is there anywhere else that people can go to look for more information about that if they want to? There's uh, some online learning um, through the King's Fund, uh, which is around kind and compassionate leadership, which is a three-module course which is available to anybody to access. But a lot of the information is available. There's a kindness leadership network that was actually set up just before the pandemic started. And they were thinking about what can we change within the system? And when the pandemic started, they actually recognised that there were system changes that happened because of the pandemic. And rather than move away from that and think, what can we change? Now they focus on what can we learn from how the system changed during the pandemic? What are the positives by giving people authority and leadership within general practice that did happen? Uh, Because teams were fantastic in the way that people worked together, uh, despite the pressures, not because of the pressures. And there's a huge amount we can learn from that around kind and compassionate leadership. And everybody in an organisation is a leader in that context because everybody has a role to play in in how that team works. So um, there's a model in place for the kindest leadership network that that people can learn from in, in taking that back into the workplace and learning from what we've all been through during the pandemic. Yeah, for those people who learn by reading, I'd also recommend Michael West's book on compassionate leadership. Um, and and uh, though I hesitate to recommend a, another podcast, when clearly the primary <laughs> care knowledge piece is the one we should all be listening to, there is also a lovely podcast by Chris Whitehead, um, where he, it's the, called The Compassionate Leadership Interview. Um, and many of the people he interviews are primary care leaders so um, really well worth a listen you'll explore their examples I gave you one of mine but lots of examples about what it means to be a compassionate leader and if I'm allowed to plug my own book obviously the leadership hike shaping primary care together lots of stuff about leading with kindness please um please (laughs) please read that (laughs) they're really good resources there I think I think well worth plugging definitely um, actually, Dominic, I was just thinking about your experiences doing the wellbeing surveys. Is there any, it's going to be quite hard to share some of the learning that's come from this in terms of anonymity, but it, are there any examples that might have come from the, the staff wellbeing surveys already in terms of things that you've seen? Well, we're still at the fairly early stages of uh, doing this process at the moment. Um, but I have got some data back that I've been collating and it's actually overwhelmingly positive in terms of the data that's come back. So in terms of people feeling apprehensive about doing it, yeah. actually the, the the responses that we've come back maybe show small numbers of people who are experiencing difficulty, whether that's through stress or, or whatever it might be. Um, but actually uh, the, the responses that are coming back 
are that people are working together, they're working as teams and they're coping with the stress that everybody's under, recognising the fact, you know, we can't change the environment, we can't change the working environment. We're putting people into stressful working situations. We can't change that, unfortunately. The pressure is on, but people are finding ways of coping and that goes back to the kind of leadership network that is is saying that people find ways to deal with the pressure and the stress that people feel in the workplace. I think there is a huge amount of support out there for people, whether it's through support like the Resilience Hub in Greater Manchester, we've got a wellbeing toolkit which is available. There's also issues looking at the, the wider definitions around wellbeing, for example, uh, the financial pressures that people are under at the moment. There are resources available to help people cope with all of that. And I think that the key message is that if people start to have conversations and identify what the pressures are for you individually and as teams, then we can identify a resource that will help you through that and start to develop some action plans that will help you to both work towards well-being, but also to signpost your workforce towards the whole range of support that's out there. So rather than say there are frameworks and toolkits and everything else and, and you know let you go and navigate it, we can start to make suggestions around things that will identify where the pressures are for you and to um, access a source of support that is going to help you on a specific issue. Yeah. Just I'm just mindful, of course, that this support is Greater Manchester specific and your listeners are nationwide and and some international listeners so find out what's there available in your area and certainly but we have individuals like kind of Dominic and Lorna and I and we have a and the HR expert as well if one of the things that came out was you know something very challenging related to say bullying who could give um, advice on that point of view so you're not on your own with this in terms of certainly practices in GM I'm hoping other areas are equally well supported yeah that's brilliant um, and, and you have mentioned quite a lot of um, fantastic resources as we've um, gone through the chat today, but is there anything else that um, any of the three of you want to particularly highlight for the listeners? So one of the practical things you could do as a practice manager is introduce stress risk assessments if you haven't already done so. Templates are available on the HSE's website. You can download them and just make those part of your return to work interviews and you can follow up your staff and make sure that you're making any reasonable adjustments or adjustments that will help them um, to manage stress in the workplace. Um, It's one of the re- the suggestions within the QAF QI detail guidance around improving wellbeing, resilience and, and risk of burnout. Yeah, I guess something I need to point out about the QAF QI is um, the document, the full document with all the guidance in has lots and lots of things that you can do. They're not all mandatory and it's not always worded in a way that makes that clear. Mm. You do whatever it is to assess your staff well-being that is right for you and your team in order to give you the enough information and enough data for you to test out some improvements so don't feel it's a tick list of must do's but um, as Lorna said something like your stuff stress risk assessment could be a thing that you might choose to do and um, either with a well-being survey or or set or you know do one or the other so whatever you feel is the thing that you're most likely to want to to build on and improve. 
And there are also national sources of support. So, for example, NHS England provide the Looking After You 2 coaching support, which is for individuals, for teams, for careers. And all of the frameworks that are out there, um, acknowledging that you haven't got time to go through everything, but mm -hmm. they do contain tools, resources, um, case studies around what you can do in a specific area around well-being if you've identified that there's a need there. I've accessed the coaching. It's, it's really good, actually. It really helped me. Um, so thinking about summing up um, our chat today, thank you all so much for this. Um, what, what learning points would you like to sort of to gather our thoughts and say at the end? I think that the key learning point that, that I try and make whenever I'm having a, a conversation is to start the conversation around well-being. And that might be within a team meeting, within a forum, within an appraisal, but just start to have those conversations. There's a, a range of uh, tools out there that will help you to do that, whether it's about how to have a wellbeing conversation or about how to record a wellbeing conversation. But until you start to have those conversations and to give people the permission to have those conversations, you don't know what the issues are. So that is the starting point. Everything from that point um, is what you do next, but there is a range of support available and there are services out there that will help you to navigate that support, whatever it looks like for you. Everybody's different, so it's going to be different for everybody, but start the conversation and then identify what resources are out there that will help you to meet the needs that you've identified. And I'll just add, I'm hoping we've persuaded you it's not a nice to have, it's fundamental to the delivery of care for our patients. And Lorna? I would say don't take things personally. If you know you get feedback that actually people are unhappy in, in your workplace, it isn't your fault. Uh, it's just something that you know we need to try and work together on. Joanna mentioned about uh, compassionate leadership and leading with kindness. I'd like to flip that on its head and say, be kind to your leaders. They're trying the best as well. So, you know, be kind to them, have these meaningful conversations with one another and be open. Um, but working together will, will get you where you need to be much easier than expecting someone to get you there without any involvement from yourself. Oh, brilliant. Thank you all so much. That's, that's been a really good talk. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. So yes, it was lovely to, to chat to the three of them today. Um, for all the listeners who don't know, we've done two episodes this morning. I'm um, quite an intense morning, but it's gone from clinical to like complete opposite where we're chatting about staff wellbeing. And I, I love that about the podcast and the episodes and hopefully you do with listening um, as well, that we can be so varied. Um, but what did you take away, Sarah, from today? Yeah, it was a bit of a yeah, change in direction, definitely. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to them. I think it's something that they're all quite passionate about. Um, I sort of approached the episode coming from thinking about being a busy partner who doesn't have the time and might feel quite cynical about a, a sort of top-down measure coming to sort of, and the, the vague irony of saying, oh, you know, here's some more work to try and improve staff wellbeing when you, you might, you know, you might be buckling yourself. So I hope that actually it's been really useful to show there's a lot of resources out there. There's been some positivity with it. And I think actually getting the data um, and also thinking about the practice managers and having sparing a thought for those people <laughs> doing so much of the good work as well. And both partners and practice managers coming together and trying to gather the data in a meaningful way and, and have lots of uh, options about how to look at the data and have the support to look at that data, should it be bad, uh, as well as 
than the resources to to help break it down and try and control what we can control. Exactly. Um, I think there is an element of frustration that it had to come down to being an indicator and that that's been put on the people who um, are struggling and overworked and they have to tick the boxes and do the filling in and fill in the forms and um, give the evidence and they're also having to sort the problem out. Um, but I think what this episode has shown me is that um, one, that that might be necessary in some areas for them to actually think about well-being um, and two, that it doesn't actually mean that the practice managers and partners are on their own doing this. There is quite a lot of resources out there. They can get help with data gathering, they can get help with interpretation, they can get help with um, thinking about what to do next. So um, I think we'll put loads of resources that we can get hold of in the episode description and hopefully they'll um, help lots of you out there. Um, but yeah, for now, thank you very much for listening, um, getting to the stage, um, following us through to our learning points. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, we'll put all the links in the episode description. And we also really like uh, when people like and subscribe because it uh, apparently puts us up in charts and spreads the word and um, means that we can spread our lovely education, um, which we essentially really like doing. So please like and subscribe. Thank you. Till next time. I'm Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in 2023. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast.